What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Robert Sivas. I met him at the Keto Summit Omaha, and he was speaking on the topic of carbohydrates as an addiction. And I really just resonated with every single thing he said. I appreciated his mindset and outlook towards the whole topic. And I really knew that I had to get him on the podcast because I, I love diving deep into mindset, and we did. We went into so much more than that. We went into parenting. We went to performance-enhancing drugs, performance-reducing drugs, you know, being athletic on a low-carb diet, having a healthy, sustainable lifestyle, living the full length of a proper human lifespan. There's just so much good information here. I know you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, sit back, relax, learn something. Dr. Robert Sivas. And we're live. Dr. Sivas, how are you today, sir? Oh, great, Robert. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled and excited and honored to be here. I am honored to have you, sir. I, I listened to your presentation at uh, the Keto Summit here in Omaha a few weeks ago, and I was blown away by just your approach to it because I feel like you have a very unique perspective in the fact that you're talking and referring to carb, uh, carbohydrate intake as an addiction, which I think we all can agree with, but the way you illustrated that point was very, very eloquently done. So hats off to you on a great presentation. Well, thank you very much. And I think um, there's so much crossover between um, athletes and sports people and, and kind of that, that side of things, uh, the work part, that um, this will be a very interesting conversation, both about what we do know uh, that, that perhaps the general public is not as aware of because it's kind of a, a secret that's been hit out, hidden out in the open, and then also certain things where I can tell you that I'd love to have some knowledge and feedback from your audience, um, be it on the obesity side, the diabetes side, the athletic side, the endurance side. I, I, we're growing every day. Every single day we're learning more. And I would love feedback in terms of what results people are finding. And you know, the beauty about this is that the folks who are doing what we're going to be talking about are incredibly invested and passionate about this. So uh, the data comes forth very readily. And a lot of the studies that we're seeing, the formal studies that we're seeing are either paid for by industry looking for a particular endpoint, or alternatively, um, they are really there to support people's biases. And what I love about my audience, my patients, and, and I'm sure your audience as well, is that they are going to give us honest feedback. And if you get a feedback from a variety of different individuals, and it's all kind of in the same track and the same pathway, you can really synthesize relatively bias-free information that is of value to people in that arena. So as we go through this, I'm not just going to be the expert. I'm also going to ask some questions and perhaps get some feedback over time from folks uh, um, as we highlight certain questions and certain things we just don't know. By all means, I'm all for that. I'd, I'd love to get a little backstory on on what made you so passionate about this in the first place. Like, What brought you into this arena? It's kind of an interesting story. I'm, my background is I'm a pediatric surgeon, and we're general surgeons first, adult surgeons, and pediatric surgeons. And um, as part of that, I went into the laboratory and did a PhD. And my PhD was done in the 1990s on sugar in the liver. And our cons uh, we were so full of misconceptions and incorrect uh, thoughts. And there was a huge clash between the questions we were trying to answer, you kind of have an idea of, of what the answer should be. And lo and behold, we did studies and we did experiments and they, they proved to us exactly the opposite. 
we thought that the that livers performed poorly in transplantation when they didn't have enough sugar to live off. And so we created this model where we added sugar to the liver, and lo and behold, uh, we discovered we, we were directly under the microscope looking at diabetes in action. We were looking at fatty liver in action. We were looking at how sugar actually damages the liver rather than helps the liver. And, and the liver is an incredibly resilient, powerful organ, and yet you can destroy it in a few hours um, by feeding it sugar. And that just clashed so heavily with our bias. And it took me a while. It took me several years to understand that what we were looking at, what our thoughts were, were completely opposite and wrong. And then if I correlated uh, my findings in the transplanted liver with a broader subset of the population, the obesity and the diabetes section, it, it just made all the sense in the world that the, the issue here was actually sugar. And the injuries I saw in my livers as I studied them was identical to the injuries happening in human beings as they develop a behavior pattern of chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, whether it was for performance under the misguided carb loading, uh, in the misguided carb loading era, or whether it was just because Carbohydrates make us feel darn good, and we eat more and more of them, almost like a smoker smoking or an alcoholic drinking, to the point of excess, and then we ignore the excess, the, the harm from the excess, the obesity, the diabetes, the hypertension, the metabolic syndrome. We ignore that harm to continue the relationship. Well, what I just described there is the description of an addiction. So not only were we seeing the injury from sugar to the whole human body, from the hair to the toes. Um, but we were also seeing the behavior patterns that people adopted, and there were really two streams. There were people looking for a health advantage, and I want to go down that stream with our athletes, and certainly Tim Noakes is the quintessential uh, figurehead of the, of the people that was heavily invested in the science of carb loading, and he has since completely recanted and reversed that position in a very humble but powerful way, uh, and yet endured immense criticism from the people that couldn't get away from the fact that carbohydrates are a valuable asset in, in performance training. Um, and then more, more importantly for me, uh, it really, we were looking at the disease spectrum and by far the commonest, most ubiquitous reasons why people die in the world well, certainly in, in the, in the, in North America, uh, in the current era is because of the consequences of chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption. And yet nobody dies because they're fat but they die because of the pattern by which they become fat. Um, and that's a, so that's also a part that we've been able to reconcile. And as part of that, I began to practice, I'm a surgeon, but we started to use a ketogenic um, uh, eating plan. First of all, a low carbohydrate eating plan. And then as we became uh, more comfortable, a higher fat eating plan, and then also introducing uh, intermittent fasting. I, intermittent fasting is not something that, you intentionally do, it kind of happens when you're on a ketogenic diet if you allow yourself not to eat when you're not hungry. Right. So that became the paradigm before the words keto, before the words IF, before the words carnivore existed in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that was our program. And uh, we had Dr. Adkins as a powerful resource to lean on. Uh, he's kind of the grandfather and a mentor. And um, that was kind of our program that we built for helping people with obesity and diabetes as well as some of our performance athletes. But there were still some people that 
like a smoker who just couldn't quit by themselves. They tried and tried and failed and failed, even though they knew that was the right way to change and they did well when they did it. And as a surgeon, we then started doing bariatric surgery, not upfront, not to as an alternative to eating correctly, but a little bit like Chantix for someone who desperately wants to quit smoking and is, tr is struggling. And we learned a huge amount from our bariatric surgical population, and I still do some surgeries. But the coolest part is the more we invest in our patients in terms of taking personal responsibility for themselves and, and adopting a progressive ketogenic, not diet, but a lifestyle. of Because lifestyle is different than diet. Diet's all about removal. And um, a lifestyle transformation is removal and replacement. And the more solidly you replace the role that carbohydrates had in your life with better, healthier, more effective endorphin alternatives, the less likely you are to uh, relapse and the more likely you are to sustain this as a way of life, being obesity and diabetes free. So more and more my patients are able to do that and I've become very heavily engaged and involved in now the, this new ketogenic movement. But as I said, we've been doing this for, for you know 20 plus years and there are mistakes that people are currently making that we've already made and corrected in the past. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. I've just been down so many branches of this, of this tree and always come back to the trunk. So maybe we can explore some of those things as we continue to talk, but that's my backstory. And um, we've literally dealt with tens of thousands of people, um, both on the surgical side, as well as on the, on the management side. And, um, uh, Hopefully, I can bring some of that experience to bear in terms of what the right things are to do and what the wrong things are to do. But ultimately, the most important thing, just to summarize this long introduction, is that the problem with obesity and the problem with diabetes on the health side and metabolic syndrome, it, it's, it's not a food problem. It's not a nutrition problem. It's not an overeating problem. It's not a calorie problem. It is a substance abuse problem. Carbohydrates should be in the same category as crystal meth, crack cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, uh, vaping, which is nicotine. The reason why they should be there is, number one, the primary reason we eat them is not for health. It's not for nutrition. It's for pleasure. It gets us high immediately. It gives us an immediate sense of relaxation, tranquility, um, gratification. And then we have to pay the price for that afterwards. So we look for instant gratification with a price to be paid for that reward on the back end. And that's a very dysfunctional way to live life. But um, the other reason why carbohydrates are a drug is because they are not necessary for human survival. And therefore, unlike protein and fat, the human body has no cyclical stopping point. And if you think about it, when you drink water, uh, you're thirsty, you drink water, as soon as your thirst is quenched, you stop. And there's very little incentive to continue to drink water. When you're drinking alcohol, you have to control how much you're going to drink because you can drink all the way through to passing out or vomiting. That's not, that's not your body uh, telling you to stop. That's a toxicity. So you can drink all the way to harm when it comes to alcohol. You cannot do that with water. And the reason for that is because alcohol is a drug that has no uh, necessary value to humans. We drink it for pleasure, and therefore excess is possible, and excess over time leads to harm. Well, exactly the same with carbohydrates. We consume them for pleasure. They are not necessary for human survival, except perhaps in the first year of life and in utero. And then beyond that, we don't need them. And therefore, there is no intrinsic, inherent biological stopping point for eating carbohydrates. 
you can be stuffed on eating steak or a salad or vegetables uh, or chicken, and you can't eat any more chicken or steak. But two minutes later, you're eating cheesecake, you're eating ice cream, you're eating chocolates, you're eating chips. You can even finish the mashed potatoes. You're not eating. You're getting high. And if you do that on a chronic excessive, on a chronic excessive basis, and it doesn't matter if you're an athlete or not, and this is the key thing, athletes who carb load, even though it's not done directly for the uh, mental benefit, ultimately excess leads to harm. And excess over time causes obesity, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, and all the common causes of death. Inflammation uh, leads to cancers. We can link the chronic excessive consumption of carbohydrates to all those diseases. So a mind shift is necessary uh, in the population to remove carbohydrates from the food category and put it in the crystal meth category. And once you do that and you examine your own relationship with sugar and starch, then you can decide whether you actually have control of the relationship and you just want to relinquish that that. Uh, the, the relationship with carbohydrates from your life, or in fact, the relationship is at a point where it is out of control. Just like an alcoholic or someone who drinks heavily has to make the same decision with alcohol. And if you realize that, oh my God, all these bad things have happened because of my relationship with carbohydrates, and the, the best two endpoints are type 2 diabetes and, and obesity, that relationship is out of control. And then to try to control it on some diet is ridiculous. It's like asking an alcoholic to drink two beers a day. It's just not going to happen because by definition, you, you're asking someone who's lost control of their relationship to now tightly control the relationship. So it's absolutely ludicrous. And the reason why the ketogenic approach is so effective is because it really is, if it's done correctly, and the words, the most important words are a well-formulated ketogenic diet, one that really doesn't give you access to carbohydrates. So we don't want a harm reduction. We want an addiction methodology for obese and type 2 diabetic patients. Then if you can change that relationship, if you can break the relationship by not doing it and replace it with other things, then it has sustained, but then it becomes a lifestyle. You cannot sustainably change something that you're still doing if you're an addict. It just doesn't work. You have to remove and replace. That's addiction management. So that's been our approach, and we've refined that strategy, and we hold our patients by the hand, and we kind of take them down that pathway, and we do this telephonically all over the world. Uh, I also do it locally in my practice in, in Florida, in Jacksonville, and in West Palm Beach. And as athletes have tried to migrate away from carb loading, we've also been, for a certain group, uh, triathletes, distance runners, certain power performers, certain team sport players, uh, we've, we've been... Uh, uh, engaged in helping those folks to transform uh, themselves without losing a huge step. Anytime you make a change in your diet as an athlete, you step backwards. And how do we minimize that step backwards or step sideways to gain the advantage and also the health advantage? So long introduction, but we can take it from there. No, no, I love it. I love it. I think, um, you know, there's so many people that they they need to hear these bold statements. I mean, putting carbohydrates in the same category as crack cocaine is a very very ballsy statement but i think that's what we need because the current thought process that people are incorporating is clearly not working or proving effective and i feel like for myself personally having that shift in in you know thought process towards the food that i'm consuming as an addictive substance was a pretty a, a pivotal moment in me recovering because i mean i was 
right there with the best of them. I was, you know, carb loading. I would binge. I would overconsume, and I would just be caught in this negative feedback loop that led to, you know, all my eating disorders and all kinds of issues. When I started looking at food for what it truly was and recognized that I could be much, much better off by removing that source, everything got better. And I feel like if people view it that way with that degree of severity, that's when their eyes can be opened and actually make an improvement. You're exactly right. I think, um, let me ask you this question, and it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, if um, performance-enhancing drugs steroids, whatever it may be, um, were not banned substances that they were perfectly fine to use. Would you use them? No. Okay. A lot of athletes would. Yes. And yet whatever advantage the performance enhancing drugs, and, and we see, we've seen, I mean, we all know people that have taken performance enhancing drugs and just become beasts, but ultimately the greatest liability or the greatest asset value doesn't come from a performance enhancing drug. The greatest asset value for most athletes is to give up what I call a PRD, a performance reducing drug, especially if you're going to be in the game for a long time. And the single greatest PRD that almost all athletes uh, in the last 20 years have taken to excess um, has been carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are a performance reducing drug. And getting rid of PRDs is probably far more important than trying to solve your training or your size problems with a, P, uh, a PED. And, and yet most athletes don't understand that, that carbohydrates actually reduce and uh, re reduce not only your performance, but your ability to train. The endpoints of, of human biology are retarded by or reduced by the consumption of carbohydrates on a chronic excessive basis. And a lot of distance runners have suffered from that. Um, fatigue is a huge issue. Um, water logging is a big issue for the, for the distance athletes. And then the diseases that creep in, the blood pressure issues, the diabetes issues, the insulin resistance issues, all of those things, the cramping. And it comes down to recovery. It comes down to muscle regeneration. It comes down to triage of protein to the right places. It comes down to cutting if you're, if you're uh, um, a bodybuilder. All those things matter when you consume carbohydrates as performance-reducing drugs. And once an athlete understands, because athletes want every, every single performance advantage, once you understand that uh, carbohydrates may give you an initial high, they may make you feel good and perform good for a short period of time, but somewhere a price has to be paid, and the price is massive on the back end. The flip side is to put the effort in up front and get the reward on the back end. And that's a far, far more effective way to go. But carbohydrates are PRDs that are ubiquitously used by athletes and they reduce performance. It's funny because I've been preaching that very message for the past five years that I've been keto adapted and I've been following this diet strictly. But that, I mean, I've literally been beating that into everybody's ears that I can get a hold of, but nobody wants to believe that because... I think of a lot of it is just, you know, the people that are athletic, the people that are, they, they have the, the performance, they have the look, they're able to eat copious amounts of carbohydrates and not look overweight. They have this, you know, veil over them, so to speak, that people just assume they can do no wrong. Oh, it's working for them. I mean, they put them on the cereal boxes to motivate people to eat more carbs to look like this individual. 
But when you stop and look at what's actually happening, I mean, even within the ketogenic community, I mean, I've got so many people saying that my performance would improve if I was to incorporate a cyclical style ketogenic diet or a targeted style ketogenic diet because, you know, there's certain studies that illustrate that may be the case. But I've argued and will continue to argue that by allowing yourself to become truly, deeply adapted over a long period of time, this doesn't happen overnight, but just continually day in, day out, following this protocol and sticking with it and staying true to it, your performance is going to be far and above anything that could be achieved through some momentary high from a cyclical or targeted or carb load. I think you're absolutely right. And how long have you been being active professionally? How long have you been on stage and psychically working yourself up for a, uh, a competition? How many competitions over how many years have you been competing? I started training about 10 years ago. My first competition was in 2012, uh, and I went pro in 2017. And when would you like your last competition to be? I, I plan on being on stage. I'm going to be dead sexy at 87 years old. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and that is extremely unlikely, extremely unlikely, if you were a chronic consumer of carbohydrates, chronically or at least uh, cyclically or not. Because... Uh, if you think of the ketogenic lifestyle, I put a post out on my Instagram feed a little couple of days ago about this, is that a study just gets done in rats. And this, this was on stage a couple of, uh, couple of days ago. Uh, a study gets done in rats, um, and they looked at rats on standard American diet and rats on a ketogenic diet. And they found that the rats on the ketogenic diet, well, this was the statement. They said rats on a ketogenic diet live much longer, um, significantly longer than rats on a standard, standard American diet. And that was their conclusion. Is that a correct conclusion? That sounds good I mean, to if, me. If the, if, if the paper said, uh, we fed these rats from birth to death, we fed them one group on a standard American diet, one on a ketogenic diet, and the rats on the ketogenic diet lived much longer. Is that a good conclusion for that paper? I, I, mean, I'll, I mean, I'm not a rat, but I'll definitely take that over the carb approach. No, okay. So, so let's flip this around. And I, I didn't, I, you know, when I asked that question, most people don't, don't get it like I heard it. Uh, and I'm not better than anybody else. This is just my world. That is a, a completely garbage statement. Here's the way the statement should go. Is that rats on the ketogenic diet lived a normal lifespan. Rats on the standard American diet died at a younger age than they should have. I like that. You see the difference? Totally. Okay. So at 87, you should still be competing short of non-ketogenic disease because you are maximizing your omnivorous human potential. People that carb load or use forms of the standard American diet may perform well one competition over another, but ultimately, their longevity, their disease, and we know this categorically, is going to shorten both their whole life and their performance lifestyle. Now, are there smokers that live to 99 and are still smoking? Of course. You're always going to find an anecdote. But, but statistically, you are shortening your performance life and your real life if you are cycling through carbohydrates. And I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody on that fact. So that rat study actually showed that the ketogenic diet is normal and people on a standard American diet or rats on a standard American diet are dying earlier. And, and the problem with, it, with, with a lot of even the, the evangelical people in 
that support a ketogenic way of life, we don't understand that. We look at all the, the illnesses. What we've got to understand is that the ketogenic diet is the healthiest diet out there. It keeps us healthy. And that all the other diseases that we're dealing with, the diabetes, the obesity, and all those fallouts, are really aberrations or moves away from the healthiest diet for human beings. And, and we really have to flip our thinking in that regard. But is that, does that make some sense to you? Absolutely. I'm just amazed at how people can, can hear this research, know that it exists, and, and still sway the opposite direction. I know that it is because of the addiction, but it just it never ceases to amaze me where people place their priorities. I mean, I am very much so on the, the side of a strict ketogenic, like this is my lifestyle. I don't, I don't dip my toe in the water. I'm all in or I'm all out and I'm all in. Like I don't, I don't play around with, with the line because there's no need to cross that line. I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything by following the strict ketogenic protocol. However, I can understand that there are certain people that would like to incorporate, you know, certain occasional foods every once in a while, like some type of, you know, sentimental value food, which in the first place, I don't ever think it makes that much sense to put such a emotional weight in any type of food. But that, another point entirely. When you look well, at no, people... Okay, let, me, let, me just, let me stop you there for a second, Rob, because this is a, a crucial point. And I, I kind of alluded to this a little while ago. Would you ever use heroin? Heroin? No, I don't plan on it. <laughs> why, why, why would you not use heroin? Because I don't, I don't, desire i don't feel like i'm missing something in my life there's no hole that i need to fill by desensitizing myself well a lot of people won't use heroin because they're afraid of dying of, of the heroin killing them but there's also this incredibly powerful instant high that you get from heroin that's what addicts people but people like you and me are never going to go there because of the risk right however people that use heroin are completely ignorant to the risk so, so they are immune to risk. All they're looking for is the instant high. And they're willing to roll up their sleeve and inject heroin into their veins, even if the risk is turning blue and dying. Okay, and now that's a, it's a very harsh example, but what you just said is exactly the same thing, is that people are willing to consume carbohydrates for what they believe to be the instant satisfaction, not just the, the mental high, but the instant performance gratification. They want it and they want it right now. And they don't, they're immune to the consequences or the fallout down the road. Whereas you are taking a longer term view at this, which is the right way to go. You know, if you don't perform so great in this performance, there's going to be another one and you're going to do better the next time. These guys don't ever look down the road they're looking right now, what, what can maximize my performance right now? And if I have to pay for a price for it on the back end, so be it. Because they're, they're very good at ignoring that price. You're looking at this long term, strategically. And that's, to my mind, the healthiest, best way to look at it. People that are using these drugs are either ignorant to it or using it. And I believe that the ignorance cannot be an argument anymore. They're using it because they're willing to ignore the consequences on the back end to have the front end uh, uh, gratification and the positivity from the front end, just like it, no different than a heroin addict will shoot up now for the high, and if something bad happens on the back end, so be it. And, 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 and I'm not being nasty to those folks. That is the reality of the decision-making, and you've chosen not to take that risk, both with heroin and with carbohydrates. And, and I, I commend you for that, and I just hope that more and more people understand that this is about not only today, but also tomorrow. And if you can have today and tomorrow, isn't that better? 
I th- I certainly think so. I'm curious to get your take on this because I I've come to find that I'm I'm just a contrarian on this subject because I am much more excited about the long game. I'm always preaching about the long game. Like that's how I run my business. That's how I you know structure my nutrition, my training. Like I don't care about tomorrow at the expense of ten years from now. Like I'm trying to be the best for the long haul. Why is it that you think people are so hung up on this? concept of instant gratification like from a deep-rooted psychological standpoint why do you think that is the case you know it's it's interesting because and it's a very good question let's look i'm going to use an analogy here let's look at a guy who gets into the ring for a fight there's two types let's say everybody's pretty good uh at 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 boxing but the guy that the two guys that get into the ring and these are two professional boxers the first guy gets into the ring and he's highly emotional and he's all pumped up and he's totally psyched up and his adrenaline's running and he's just coursing adrenaline through his veins. And he's, he's pumped, he's practiced, he's fit, he's a good boxer. And he gets in there and he just goes ballistic for a little while because he's running on emotion. But he's ignorant to the technique, to the strategy. He's functioning off instinct and his emotions are driving his instinct. And if he gets a knockout in the first round, he's the winner. Fantastic. But what happens if he doesn't get a knockout, a KO in the first or the second round? Now we're getting to the third and the fourth and the fifth rounds, and his emotions are subsiding. And now it's all about long-term planning. It's about technique. It's about thinking. How am I going to hit this guy? And, and analyzing what, what his opponent is, where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are. I need to stay away from his strengths. Here's his weaknesses. Let me exploit that. That is now thinking about intelligently, intellectually, and in a, a non-emotive way about how to win the fight. And, and sure, the emotional boxers come out there and they annihilate people in the first round or two. But those are the guys who have very short careers because if the other guy is able to get through the first two rounds, now it's the long game and it's the intellectual game and it's the issue-driven how do I win this fight with my skills game not the emotion game. And the other guy gets in the ring and he says, okay, this guy's wired up. He's, he's, he's all over the place, but let me watch him. Let, 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 and he's the thinker. And he's the guy that gets in. He's got great skills, great technique, but his emotions are very tightly in check because this is his job. This is his business. And he goes about the fight, bobbing and weaving and analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of his opponent. And the other opponent is coming with a flurry of, 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 uh, haymakers in the first round. And if you can endure that, if you can bob and weave and miss those, round two, round three, round four, round five, all the way through to round 10, he wins every round because he's thinking and he's not firing off emotionally. That defines you as the thinking guy who trains hard, who practices really hard, but you come at, the, at this with an intellectual, intelligent game plan. There are other guys that rush into the gym that pump iron like crazy. They're willing to take a bunch of drugs. They need that instant gratification. They want to win round one. They want to be the biggest, best in the first competition they get into. Where are they in the second, third, and fourth competitions? They're injured. They didn't train hard enough. They don't feel it anymore. They're disappointed by the results. They're poof gone. Does that make some sense to you? Yes, absolutely. I feel like we've, and maybe I'm totally wrong in thinking this, but I feel like lately, like over, like in my lifetime, uh, you know, I'm 28 years old, so like I feel like my lifetime, my generation is is like at the peak of this. I feel like the the 
the rise of just instant gratification and playing the short game is at an all-time high right now. But I don't know why. Like from a like a generational standpoint, I don't know why or when this shift occurred. But you know, I look back and I, I'm I'm pretty well read on like old old scholars, and I feel like everybody you know 200 years ago they valued the long game much more so than you're seeing these days. Like people would be excited about becoming a master of a craft. Like they would they would work at that craft tirelessly day in day out until they're the world's greatest at that thing. Whereas now you you don't see very many people holding you know their 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 attention towards any one thing for longer than a week or two. And Robert, that is the heart of what we do. That's called emotion management. And ultimately the root cause of obesity, of burnout, of all those things is how we were raised and what skills and what diversity we've developed to deal with our emotional needs. So let me ask you this question. What do you do for pleasure? What do you do for fun? I build businesses. <laughs> what else? Uh, that and bodybuilding. I'm a, I'm a big hunter. I'm, I'm an outdoorsman. I love being outside and, and being in nature. Why didn't you tell me that the first answer should have been you love to train, but it wasn't. And the reason is because training and performance is your job. Yeah. And I mean, I can, I'm looking at a picture of you right now in a pose and I mean, you clearly are darn good in your job, but your job, as hard as you work at it, and, and this is true for anybody, not just a, a, a bodybuilder or a, a lifter or athlete. This is true in my job. When we invest a lot of effort into our work and, and we really, when it comes to productivity, excellence, perfection, top of the game is what we strive for. But that's hard work. And the byproduct of that hard work is anxiety, stress, depression, anger, fear, frustration, boredom, pleasure, all of the emotional spectrum. Together, I call that emotional tension. It's a little bit like when you drive your car and you're driving your car hard and fast. Car's performing. It's being productive. But the byproduct of that car's engine is heat. And if you look under the hood of your car, you've got the bigger the engine, the, the more effective effective and the bigger the cooling system is because in order to keep the engine productive you have to have a healthy cooling system and for you and for me we train hard we work hard that's our job but the byproduct is that emotional tension and then we've got a variety of things and here's the quintessential uh, uh, statement that we do to offload that emotional man that that emotional tension and when we do things for endorphin relief, for that serotonin loading, for that just that relaxation, we have to put a little bit of effort in what we do. You go hunting. That requires effort up front. You've got to load up your gear. You've got to go for a walk in the woods. And then you, you, let's say you shoot a deer. But it's taken a lot of effort to get to that point. And the reward is on the back end of the effort. And you feel great. On the other side, if... You've had a rough day and you come home and you down a bottle of Jack Daniels or you, uh, as soon as you walk through the door, you open a tub of ice cream and you eat it, you're getting instant gratification. But on the back end of that instant gratification is negativity, harm, guilt, and repression of some of the issues that are driving your emotions. While you're walking through the woods chasing the deer or hunting the deer, your, your brain can kind of go into a little bit of a meditative space because the effort requires some time. And while you're walking in the woods, you're hunting and you're looking for the bucks, but you're also 
connecting with and processing certain issues with your life. It might be your business. It might be your next training session. You're resolving issues. It might be a fight with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever. How do you resolve some of that stuff? So by the time you come out of the woods, you're feeling pumped because you either got the, got the deer or you had a lot of fun out there. So you're feeling great. The physical activity has relaxed you and you're proud of what you've done, but you've also got a game plan for dealing with certain issues in your life. If you are living on the emotional edge of a substance or a behavior, let's say you've got a Vegas and you gamble and you win or you lose, those are all forms of instant gratification with a price on the back end. But because there's no meditative time component, you're not solving and connecting with the issues in your life. You're repressing them. And more and more we get disturbed and more and more we build up all this emotional tension and more and more we look for the highs of instant gratification to further repress those tensions and those issues that we don't want to deal with. And it's extremely erosive to our self-esteem and to our self-confidence. If you look at a lot of the athletes that you perform against, there's going to be the people like you whose career it is. And then the other, they're the other guys that have extremely fragile self-esteem and self, uh, uh, um, uh, self-confidence. So they're all pumped up. They, they, they've worked really hard, but they're totally emotional and they get on stage and, and if they don't win, they're so deflated that they walk away from the game because they've looked for the instant high, but they haven't invested the effort and found the reward on the back end. They're looking for the immediate high up front and they've got no way to process their emotional needs. And as fat people, and I, by the way, when I quit my sport, I gained a bunch of weight because I went from using sport as my emotion management system to carbohydrates. So always in the background, but never prevalent. So, we were looking for that instant gratification. And over time, the excessive use of an instant gratifying pathway leads not only to the harm from the drug, but also to repression of dealing with issues in your life. So you become a less effective human being. And that is incredibly erosive to your self-esteem and your self-confidence. So now, if you can't generate emotional well-being from within, you have to turn externally to more and more drugs and more and more risky behaviors to give you that same high. And eventually, the whole show collapses down. It implodes on you. And that's addiction. And how, where do you learn effective effort and time-based emotion management strategies? We learn it first and foremost from our parents. And the effective endorphin or uh, endorphin alternatives or the emotion management strategies are physical activity, creative arts, spirituality, meditation, and empathetic human connection. Now, if you look at younger kids, that's happening less and less as our parents focus on productivity. In other words, if little Johnny of four years age or Jilly says, hey, mom, I really want to play soccer. The first thing we do is we put them on the soccer team. And they go to training and they play hard and they're either good or bad. They're sitting on the bench. If they win, they feel great. If they lose, they feel terrible. You basically turned this wonderful endorphin experience called physical activity into a darn math test. And guess what? They then lose physical activity as a source of emotional management. Or if little Johnny or little Jilly draws a painting and, and sits there and paints and comes, look, mom, look, dad, I've drawn this painting. And you say, oh, that's fabulous. You're going to be the next Picasso. It's brilliant. Let's put it on the fridge. What you've done is you've praised the excellence. You haven't connected your child to the effort of the painting. The right answer is, 
hey, that looks great. I, I bet you you had a lot of fun drawing that. Because the problem is when Jilly or Johnny thinks they're excellent, now they go to school and they go to art class and they paint and they expect the same response from the art teacher. And the art teacher looks at that and says, man, did your dog throw up on the piece of paper or what exactly happened? And you've completely deflated them because their entire emotional situation is tied into the result, not the pleasure from the effort. And they lose that creative art as a source of emotion management. If you're the authoritarian parent and always raising the bar on whatever your kid did, there's no empathy. And if a child doesn't develop empathy as the primary site of human connection, then they become either narcissistic, aggressive, or passive. What you want to do is to have an assertive child, one who can state their case, but is willing to listen to reason and willing to explore things and work things out, help uh, use human connection to process issues. If you take your child at four or five years of age and you stick them in Sunday school or you stick them in religious school at a church and have to sit quietly listening to somebody talking at them for an hour or two every Sunday, they learn to dislike or re or never connect with religion. The right way to do it is to teach your child how to use a connection with a higher power to sort through stuff in their lives. And we're doing that less and less and less in the electronic era, in the productive era. So these kids develop an absence of emotion management. And for the first time in human history, we are now feeding our kids a highly neuroactive incredibly addictive, toxic drug before the children are even born. It's called imprinting. So when mom's pregnant and she has a rough day and she whacks down a, a tub of ice cream and some M&Ms, the hormonal milieu in that baby is creating exactly the same. At first, the catecholamines, the adrenaline and everything else are stressing that baby out just like mom's stressed. And then she eats the tub of ice cream, her blood sugar screams through the roof, her insulin screams through the roof, that crosses the placenta and the mom relaxes, instant gratification. Guess what? That has imprinted that fetus to connect with sugar and starch even before that baby's born. Now the baby's born and mom can't breastfeed. What is she feeding the baby? Not formula. It's called a baby milkshake. It is a high carbohydrate, low fat, mm, irrelevant protein milkshake. And, and that baby, before it even knows it's human, has connected with sugar and starch as a way of life, as a way of emotion management. Baby's crying, mom plugs in a bottle of milkshake. Older, when the kid gets to be a toddler, what are we calling it? We're calling it treats. We're giving a child crystal meth as a treat. I 100% agree. I, I just, no, it just I, blows I, my mind when I talk about this. No, I totally, I mean, I'm on the same page. I don't have kids yet, but I, I look at what you're saying and like how I would foresee myself raising children. And it's, I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I would, there's been several people that argue that the obesity epidemic is a result of, you know, hormonal imbalances. Some people say it's all caloric, uh, you know, you're not exercising enough and you're eating too much, all about calories, energy expenditure. That's Coca-Cola, Robert. That's Coke. Yeah. They did an amazing job with that. It sounds, okay. it sounds yeah. like you are arguing, and I am tending to agree with you right now, that the reason we're in an obesity epidemic on a grand scale, if you dive deep, is more likely than anything a result of bad parenting. Well, I think I, I wouldn't, I, I don't like the word bad because nobody teaches a parent how to parent. Right, right. So, 
it's just, you know, and, and addiction, the vulnerability to addictive behavior gets passed generation to generation. It's not genetic, but we get raised a certain way because our parents are doing the best they can. Our, they do the best they can given the tools they have, but all the tools they have is how they were raised. So we raise our kids a certain way and we want our kids to be successful. We want them to be productive, but we don't understand the value of a healthy, diverse cooling system. So we, ra- we get raised a certain way, we become that person, and we raise our own kids the same way, and it repeats generations. So if you look back at our parents, a lot of them were smokers because smoking was the prevalent drug in the 1950s and 60s, and perhaps their parents were alcoholics or had, uh, uh, were heavy drinkers because uh, 120 years ago, we had prohibition for a reason because Americans were drinking. But let me circle back because this is a very important point. This whole garbage about physical activity how much exercise should somebody do when they're trying to quit smoking how much exercise <laughs> try to quit smoking i mean you can do no exercise correct exactly right and when you're trying to lose weight and, and i know this flies in the face of what everyone says it is unnecessary it is not necessary to do exercise so this whole concept of calories in calories out came from Coca-Cola. In the 60s and 70s, particularly in the 1970s, um, Coke and the soda industry were being blamed for obesity. You've got all these calories in your, in your drinks, you've got all this sugar in your drinks, and that's causing obesity and diabetes. And, and Coke said, oh, no, 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 no. It's not the sugar in our drinks. It's just that Americans have become fat and lazy slugs. And Coca-Cola invested in a very, some of these guys were brilliant. They invested billions of dollars in what they called the Move More campaign. And they told Americans, you guys are fat and lazy, you need to move more. And if you, you can drink our drinks as long as you exercise, you won't get fat. That's like telling a smoker to smoke three cigarettes and go for a run to breathe out the nicotine. But Coke was incredibly good at this. And they sponsored sporting events. And even today, if you look, the majority of sporting events are, are sponsored by manufacturers of drugs, sugary drugs, and perhaps alcohol. So. A simple little reason why Coke was completely wrong. And just a couple of weeks ago was Martin Luther King Day, and I happened to see a number of people marching in the Martin Luther King parades in the 1960s. And the majority of the men wore these thin black ties, and they, they looked like their ties. They were skinny black men. And it's not because they were impoverished or poor or didn't have access to food. Everybody in the marches was skinny. They were no fat people. And then I looked at one of my favorite, because uh, I'm of that era, coming uh kind of coming to, to adulthood uh, eras was the Woodstock era. You look at pictures of Woodstock, everyone's got their shirts off, every kid is skinny, and they've all got six-packs. Yeah. I can assure you they were too busy doing LSD to ever, to ever be exercising. Those kids didn't get their six-packs from exercising. They just didn't have all this lard that came from sugar and starch in the subsequent generation covering their six-pack. That six-pack is there. We're human. It's there. It may not be as thick and as beautiful as yours, <laughs> but the six pack is still there, okay? You can enhance it, but even if you do very little physical activity, it's about the carbohydrates. So the role of physical activity in addiction management is not to burn off the calories. They are toxic when they go in your face. But physical activity is one of the four cornerstones of healthy, effective emotion management. And yes, it's got subsidiary benefits of, of muscular health, longevity, mobility, those types of things, but it is not necessary to exercise to lose weight. And that's an important uh, re-disconnection that we have to make after Coca-Cola made that connection. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of athletes, but 
I'm not saying don't exercise, but use exercise as part of your of your of rebuilding your emotion management system, not to lose weight, not to burn off calories, because then you become a fat guy like I was. Okay, I'm 300 pounds and I was, and I go for a run on a treadmill. Well, I feel like crap when I'm running because I'm basically dragging another body with me. But at the end of my little jog, the machine says I burnt a thousand calories, but I feel awful. And this ice cream is only 50 calories. It's going to make me feel better. How the devil is that going to work? Okay, calories in, calories out. And I'm still down 800, 950 calories, but I'm still fat. No, the physical activity replaces at an endorphin level, at a relaxation level, at an emotion management level, the role of instant gratification from the consumption of carbohydrates as a drug. Totally agree. It's funny. I look at I look at my father. You know, you're talking here. I'm I'm thinking of my dad because he is not overweight at all. He does not give a damn about exercise. I don't think he's ever picked up a dumbbell in his life. But <laughs> he eats. I mean, he'll eat carbohydrates every once in a while. But the vast majority of his food is just quality food. Like we raise our own lamb. Uh, you know, he he eats a lot of deer that he hunts. I mean, he eats quality food, heavy in animal based proteins, uh, and and vegetables that he grows in the garden and he has like he's a he's a phd professor of biology he's a master at his craft there but he also sails like his thing right now is sailing he's huge into like sailing and that's his emotional disconnect his relaxation his meditation and he doesn't he's not had you know any health issues any health concerns whatsoever and he eats decent food but doesn't exercise and i feel like a lot of people can resonate more with that than me, it's, it's weird. Like, I, I say you don't have to exercise, but people just assume that I'm lying to him because I'm a bodybuilder and I don't really fit the description. But, like, my father, farthest thing from a bodybuilder, but a very healthy individual. And I feel like that is so much more obtainable and within grasp than people give it credit for. But it's like they don't want to open their eyes to the fact that it is an addiction they're dealing with. You're exactly right. Now, Robert, you are so, so fortunate. I hope pretty much every evening you if you are spiritual, that, that you say a little prayer and say, thank you for giving me the, granting me the parents that, that raised me. Because it sounds like your father is a very authoritative person. What do I mean by authoritative personality? It is one that raises their children well with a diversity of emotion management systems. Clearly, he's raised somebody who's highly productive, who's highly skilled, but also is able to enjoy uh, the return of the investment of effort when they do things for pleasure, irrespective of the outcome. You know, it's, it's far nicer just to be in the woods hunting than to have to kill a buck. You know, if you get something, if you kill it, that's wonderful. But it's about the pleasure of being out there. And too few people hate hunting because they don't always get something. And, and I think you, you should be so thankful to your, uh, certainly from that description of your dad, because that is a rarity in modern America. And we really, just that description, as parents, we can learn so much from that description. I'm sure if you're blessed one day with a child, and I hope you are, because Lord knows that's moving Darwinism forward, not backwards. Um, we, if you raise the, your child the way you were raised, and you most likely will, you're building for the future. And, and that's just become such a rarity in parenting. Mostly we see the authoritarian parent who is really totally focused on productivity and excellence. Or we have the permissive parent who really has no boundaries, no structure. Um, they have the Nike problem. They just don't do it. 
and they don't put effort into anything, they don't build up self-esteem or self-confidence, or the authoritarian people who never ever credit effort, they're only focused on excellence and perfection. And no matter how hard that child tries to achieve, they're always falling short. And that little gap is filled with a sense of failure that is highly erosive to uh, self-esteem and self-confidence. So at least from that brief description, and this is kind of my job, uh, I can tell you that, that for the most part, you should be very, very thankful for the way you were raised. I, I very much so am. I mean, he and I definitely butted heads growing up. But, you know, when I look back now, it's like I really understand his approach to things and I respect the hell out of him as a person and I appreciate how he raised me and my brother and I'm him and my mom both. I mean, I'm very blessed to have the family and the parents that I do without a doubt. Um, I, I'm curious, like with with earlier you mentioned, I think you rattled off four or was it five different uh, outlets that people needed to have, like the spirituality, uh, the physical endeavor. Um, there was, there was four, right? right. Yeah. The, the, well, the, the four effort-based ones are, um, and if you have these as fundamental parts to your life, because, you know, the, the question I ask of a lot of my athletes is, and, and this is an important place to go to, I'll, I'll cover the four. The four are uh, physical activity, and it's not exercise. Physical activity is slightly different than exercise. Exercise is your job. When you're walking in the woods, you're being physically active. When you're training in the gym, you're doing your job. They're slightly different. Um, creative arts, which is anything from fashion, photography, music, art, uh, gardening, anything creative. Spirituality or meditation. It can be a connection with a higher power, uh, or it's more just a meditative experience. And I'd, I'd put passive yoga into that, not necessarily active yoga, which more goes to the exercise or the physical activity side. And then empathetic human connection. And it is where you can share your story without, without criticism or condemnation. And you can work through things with friends or family members. Now, if you've got those four or, or pieces of those four as a cornerstone, then if you have a rough day and you come home and you have a glass of wine, it's a very healthy way to dissipate emotional uh, tension. Because you can have a glass of wine and take your dog for a walk. But if you have none of those four cornerstones, and you've got all this emotional tension built up and you come home and you have that glass of wine and it relaxes you at a subconscious level, you start to bond with the relaxation of that alcohol and slowly over time, you use it more and more to the point of harm. And that is a vulnerability to addictive behavior. Or if you have no other uh, uh, emotion management tools, you discover carbohydrates, you discover gambling, those are the instant highs or dysfunctional sexual behavior. Uh, sex is a one, you know, physical, uh, a sexual relationship is one of those cornerstones as part of the empathetic human connection. But it can also be part of dysfunction. Just like an athlete who trains to the point of harm, to the point of injury, and then cannot get their butts out of the gym. Or somebody that overtrains and never gives themselves a break because they're not training for their bodies anymore. They're training for the high, for their minds. And so even things in the realm of, of the healthy endorphin alternatives can be taken to the nth degree if there's no diversity. Um, and it's important to understand that. I'm sure you've met and know athletes that have destroyed themselves because they couldn't get out of the gym when they had a small injury. Totally. I used to be one. Right. So and you had to find diversity. And it's okay Nothing bad is going to happen if you don't go to the gym. Nothing bad is going to happen if I don't eat a tub of ice cream tonight. Um, and it's, it's, the realm is very, very similar. But you found diversity. And, and that is such a valuable asset to have. 
It's funny because I, I, I think, you know, there definitely is some ignorance out there in the world. There's a lot of it. But I feel like people inside, deep down inside, they know if they're contributing to their overall well-being or their, or their overall demise. And when people have a, a tub of ice cream just for that quick fix, like they internally know that they're not contributing to their health. Like it's not bettering them in any, any way. And I don't believe anybody is able to just maintain. Like I look at life through the lens of you're either getting better or you're getting worse. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's just life. And I feel like when you when you go for these quick fixes, when you go for these short-term highs, it like you kind of alluded to earlier, it just it winds up beating you down internally. You start to lose this confidence in yourself, this motivation to be better. And that is a dangerous dangerous thing to play with because you only have one life. And if you do that for too often, for too long, you are you are in a pretty deep pit of despair that it's very hard to crawl out from. You're absolutely correct. And two points that you brought up there. The first one is that um, addicts, are, addicts are immune to risk. You can train with a guy and he can hurt himself and you see him in the gym the whole time hobbling around and still training. You know that that person is kind of addicted to his training or her training. And But when you go up to talk to them about it, they're totally ignorant to the fact that maybe they need to rest. Exactly. I mean, everybody knows that uh, smoking a cigarette is a bad idea. Everybody knows if you're fat and you're eating a tub of ice cream, it's probably not a good idea. However, addicts are immune to risk. That's the first thing. And the second comment you made uh, is such a, uh, an important comment. Maintenance is the guy that fixes the, bo- the boiler in, a, in, a, ho- in a, a hotel or an apartment building. That's the maintenance man. There is no such thing as maintenance in life. It doesn't exist. So the way I look at this is this way. I bet you you've in your life um, walked to run on a treadmill. Yes. Okay. So if you're walking on a treadmill, what happens if you're walking along and the treadmill's moving and you suddenly stop? I uh, fall off the back of the treadmill. <laughs> right. It shoots you off the back and you crash. That's maintenance. The minute you stop moving forward, the, the, the treadmill life is moving on. You, you don't just stop and step out of the pathway. You stop and it rushes you backwards and you crash. Life, especially when it comes to improving ourselves, self-improvement, and, and, and really what it's called is self-care. Self-care is like walking on a treadmill. It can be a lot of fun, but it never stops. And the key thing about walking on a treadmill, uh, really self-care in life, there are no goals. There are no endpoints. There are just milestones along the pathway. And the pathway of self-care only ends about 10 minutes after you die. Because it's an ongoing process. And the minute you say, hey, I'm at my maintenance weight, or hey, I've, I'm maintaining this, you're that guy that just stopped walking on the treadmill. And it ain't going to last very long. You're going to rush back and crash and burn. And the number of times that I pick people up who have done a, a keto diet, or they've cut out carbohydrates for a while, and now I've lost weight and I'm at my maintenance. No, you're not. And six months later, they come in with their head down, uh, I should have listened to you the first time. The key the reason why I don't like the word diet when it comes to a ketogenic lifestyle is because there is no such thing as maintenance. Maintenance is relapse. And every time you put a carbohydrate in your mouth, oh, I got this, I can eat some ice cream tomorrow, I'll be fine. Tell that to an alcoholic who has his first beer. It doesn't happen. Alcoholism wouldn't exist if someone could go out, get hammered tonight and be sober for the year after that. It doesn't happen. And that's why every alcoholic knows 
don't go there. It's about the word permission. And a large part of dietary management, because we're so focused on calories, uses a concept called harm reduction. You reduce how many calories you consume so that you lose weight. But you're not addressing the fundamental reason, the cause of why you gained the weight in the first place, which is a dysfunctional emotion management system to replace a deficient one. And so therefore, every, every calorie con uh, uh, controlling diet, including keto diets, keto diets give most people a small allowance of carbohydrates per day. Oh, you've got to be under 30. Well, I'm going to save up all my 30 like Weight Watchers so I can have some cheesecake at night. Or I'm going to save them all up so I can have a keto pizza or a keto uh, um, donut or whatever. The donut got me into trouble. I don't care what it's made of. It's the concept. Yeah. And one of the key things that we teach our, our patients is to develop arrogant integrity rather than a sense of deprivation. Why do you think, uh, and I'm, I'm going to say something that may sound blasphemous up front, but why do you think vegans stick to their diet or stick to a vegan way of life far better than the majority of people stick to a ketogenic diet? I don't know. That's a good question. Okay. It's, it's very simple. The reason people go on a ketogenic diet is either to lose weight or treat their diabetes for the most part. Okay. And when you do that, you're giving up something, you feel incredibly deprived. So when you offer someone on a ketogenic diet a piece of cake, their the response is, oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to have that. It's a very deprivational response. And then it's just that one big unexpected emotional event away from accessing that, that cake again because they feel deprived. When the, the majority of people that start a, a vegan diet don't do it because they're fat or diabetic. They start it out of care, out of misguided but out of care for the planet. Oh, climate change, we're going to kill the climate. Tomorrow the earth's going to explode. Or the poor animals, how can you kill the animals? And they're evangelical about their protection of the climate and the animals. So they're willing to make huge sacrifices because they're arrogant about the fact that they don't eat meat. So when you offer a vegan a steak, they don't say, oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to have that, I'm a vegan. They say, damn you, why the hell did you kill that animal? You bad person, you killed Bambi. They're arrogant about the fact that they don't eat meat. And their arrogance sustains them the same way that an ex-smoker will tell you, that's disgusting how the devil can you smoke. They don't say, oh, I wish I could have one, but I'm an ex-smoker, I can't smoke. No, they're arrogant in their integrity that they don't do that thing. And if we can build up the same arrogance about carbohydrates as people on a ketogenic way of life, that's disgusting. How can anybody eat ice cream? You're far less vulnerable to going there. So does that make sense to you? Totally agree. I tell people all the time, you have to change what you prioritize. Like if, for me, I prioritize how much better I feel and function following this ketogenic lifestyle than I do from the momentary high from any other type of carbohydrate-based food. So like my priority is such that I don't feel like I'm deprived or I'm sacrificing anything because I'm winning more than I'm losing. And that to me is a greater, you know, underlying win. And when you don't feel like you're sacrificing, it's, I mean, it's actually sustainable. Otherwise you're going to feel like you're always deprived. You're exactly right. But that, that's the whole point is that the concept of a diet, here's your diet. Off you go, cut out carbohydrates. Don't eat uh, except once or twice a day, intermittent fasting. Off you go. That is 
for most people unsustainable, primarily because they removed not only the harm that carbohydrates do, but the asset value. Anything that we do that's addictive has an asset value. Carbohydrates make you feel great. And when you remove them, you have to, carbohydrates are unique in the addiction world. When you quit smoking, the only value of a cigarette of nicotine is as a, uh, an emotion management, a dysfunctional emotional management tool. So when you remove cigarettes from your life, you're leaving an emotion management void. So it's a one-to-one replacement. And that's the same for almost every other drug. You know, nobody tells an alcoholic what they should drink. Uh, that's kind of uh, uh, um, natural. But when it comes to carbohydrates as addictive substances, when you remove them, they're unique in the fact that they leave two voids. They leave a nutritional void, and they also leave an emotion management void. And if you're going to remove them in a sustainable way, you have to replace both voids. So the ketogenic diet is heavily focused on replacing carbohydrates with a more effective, healthier, nutritional uh, 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 range. So the ketogenic diet fills the nutritional hole, but it still leaves a massive emotion management hole. By the time you're obese or diabetic, if you look in a, in a fat person or a diabetic person, and I use a fat person because that's who I am. My body may not be fat anymore, but my head sure is. Um, <laughs> but the, the point is that if you look in a fat person or a type 2 diabetics emotion management toolkit, by the time they've got there, you open up that toolkit, there's carbohydrates and cobwebs. And if you take out the carbohydrates, they've got nothing. And if you don't help them to understand that, it's just a question of time, either before they go back to carbohydrates or they find another dysfunctional drug. So, for example, people that successfully quit smoking, the majority of them gain weight because they didn't go... Uh, they didn't just quit smoking. They didn't, in fact, they didn't quit smoking. They just did a drug transfer. They went from nicotine to carbohydrates. The reason why you've been able to sustain this and are successful with it is because you've got a variety. If I open up your emotion management toolkit, it's like a jack in the box. Everything just jumps out. You've got all this abundance of things that you do for pleasure, for fun, for emotion management. And the problem is people like me had to build that. We had to find that. And it's taken me two decades, and I'm still pretty pathetic at putting things into that emotion management toolkit. So we're vulnerable to the muscle memory of going backwards. And that's why I try to isolate myself or insulate myself from access to carbohydrates, particularly in places where I'm emotionally relaxing. I can tell you this absolutely, Robert. If there's ice cream in my fridge tonight, I'm going to eat it. But I also know absolutely that it's not there. And because I understand my vulnerability to that addictive behavior. And if you think you've beaten the addiction, it's just a question of time before you fatten diabetic again. So stemming off of that, I've, I've got a question for you. I, I'm definitely a believer in, you know, elimination is better than moderation when you're struggling with any type of addiction whatsoever. I mean, it's just better to get it out and remove it entirely and then, you know, build yourself up from ground one. But... If you're no longer addicted, like for me, for instance, I've never been an alcoholic and I never will. And I don't really drink at all. However, once in a blue moon, I'll have a glass of wine. Like when I got married, I had a glass of wine. Um, so with someone like that, you know, in the context of whatever it may be, whether it be food, like my, my dad, for instance, he's never been addicted to carbs, but every once in a while he'll have some carbs. I inherently know, going back to my wine example, that I'm not benefiting 
you know, physically, my performance is not going to be enhanced whatsoever from that glass of wine. Like nothing is moving the needle forward. If anything, it's probably going reverse. What would you say, like in, in your mind, in your perspective, what is that? Like, I feel like for me, you know, knowing that I'm not addicted, knowing that I have no struggle there, it's like, that is my idea of just having this symbiotic moment where I know I'm not, and that's just like my, my bliss relaxation point. But I'm curious to see what your perspective is on things like that, whether it be food or drink or whatever. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it with heroin or anything by any means, but something that if it's done in moderation and if you don't have an addictive behavior towards that substance, maybe it's offering some type of emotional benefit that outweighs the decrease in performance or whatever. Right. I think, I think you've just touched on a fundamental issue in the entire nutrition, diet, weight loss world. And, and Gary Taubes, uh, who's a friend of mine, actually uh, has, a, has a great little talk about this. And, and, and this is, you're exactly right. When, when fat people, when type 2 diabetics get advice from otherwise healthy people who have never, ever experienced addiction and don't understand the concept of carbohydrate addiction, then their whole life is about moderation. They can, those are the people who can have one or two chips from the bag and fold it up and eat some more tomorrow. They do not have any realm of understanding of how someone like myself and other fat people and type 2 diabetics function. That the only way I can stop eating chips is when the bag is empty and your bag is empty. And, and that's an uncontrollable behavior. So to ask me to control that is irrational and impossible. And I think the whole dietary debate, this whole issue of moderation, comes about because people giving other people advice base it on their own realm of ability. So um, that if they're capable, without even thinking about it, of moderation, they're going to say that, at least assume, that everybody is capable of moderation. And then you're telling somebody that they're pathetic, that they're weak, that they're terrible. You, you really are stomping on an already extremely fragile, eroded self when you try to tell a fat person that moderation is the way to go. And they can try. They put a lot of effort into moderation. But you can't, we can't do it. We cannot do moderation, period. And then when we try, we're successful for a little while, and then we crash and burn. And then we get beaten up psychologically for being what we are at it. And it is incredibly erosive. And if you look at the, the amount of depression, the amount of anxiety, the amount of suicide, because people are telling us how pathetic we are that we cannot tolerate moderation. I love and, and just I'm so envious of people like you that are able to do this in moderation. I just know I can't. And the challenge is to be able to tell people that moderation isn't a feasible way to go. And I think that's the fundamental part. If you read all these blogs by these so-called dietary experts, and I think the, the whole nutrition education system is based on the concept of moderation. Tolerance. You can have a little bit, but you can't have a lot. That's why I never measure anything. I eat steak until I'm full. I don't eat ice cream at all. That, that's my measurement. 
and I eat once or twice a day when I'm hungry. It's not a difficult system to follow, but they have to measure everything. You can have this amount, this amount, because moderation is possible for them. Now, on the flip side, I'm a fat guy. I have an out-of-control relationship with carbohydrates I always will have, but I'm not an alcoholic. I've been drunk. I've abused alcohol from time to time, but I've never, ever lost control of the relationship. So therefore, for me, if I have some of those other things that I do on a regular basis, I go for my walks with my dog, I run from time to time, I do a little bit of gym work, I'm physically active, I'm spiritual, I'm, I have good empathetic human connect connections. I have the, like you, the most wonderful wife as a human being in my life. I, I just, I, I, she is my emotion management system when it comes to human, human beings. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, I have some creative things that I do. So therefore, when I have a relaxing day or a rough day, I can come home and have a, a glass of wine or a beer. And I'm not going to go ballistic with it because I've never gone ballistic with it before. And I don't have the need because of those other things to go ballistic with it. Now, I have very cognizant awareness that I am vulnerable to addictive behavior. So I never drink when I'm alone. I never drink when I'm really depressed or upset. Um, and I try to have very tight boundaries around my drinking or at least have somebody else in my presence that's going to take care of me and help me with those boundaries. And, and if I'm responsible with it, I can enjoy the benefits of alcohol within the realm of a diverse endorphin management system to the point that it doesn't cause me harm. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. I think all this can kind of be summed up. Like people just need to have self-awareness. Like if you have self-awareness as to what your addictive personality traits are, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and then mitigate those in the best way possible. Like, like people just need to be self-aware. Boom. <laughs> you, you're exactly right. You, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, I think that is a piece that we don't talk to people about. And um, part of it is stepping back from your busy life. Where's your cell phone right now? It's probably dead somewhere. I think it's dead. <laughs> Okay, okay, so, so stop right there. That wasn't the answer I was expecting. But I would like every member of your audience, when they're listening to this, to look around and see where their cell phone is. What you've just given is such a rare answer these days that you don't even know where it is. People cannot escape from something simple like their cell phone. And there's a concept that I spoke about in, um, in Boca at the Low Carb USA conference last weekend. The title of my talk was Dopamine Fasting and Serotonin Loading. We are so focused on productivity, on connectivity. And, you know, if our self-work, we don't let in the old days go to work and then leave work and go home to play and rest. Our cell phone comes with us. So we blend work and social life continuously. How many times do most people not put a social engagement, a chat with their wife or their family on hold to take a business call? Or put their social life on hold to go and send an email or to do something. Um, you know, more and more we're blending productivity into our social life and into our emotion management life. And that's a highly, highly toxic situation because we never completely relax. So the title of my talk was called Dopamine Fasting and Serotonin Loading. And essentially, if you look at it this way, that all that productivity is where the dopamine is the hormone that gets released into your brain that helps you to focus, helps you to be productive, helps you to concentrate. And the normal way that the human body works, every system in the human body works 
in a homeostatic feedback, negative feedback cycling way. So when we're focused and concentrating on a, on a subject, dopamine builds up for about 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and then it, we need a relief. We need, our brain cells need a momentary break. Think about it like driving in the rain. You're driving in the rain, the water's spilling onto your windshield, it's getting increasingly opaque. You hit the windshield wiper and suddenly the windshield is clean and then the rain gathers again and then you hit the windshield. That's how our brains work. So we build up dopamine when you focus and then we need a, a windshield wiper. And the windshield wiper is something called serotonin. It's a hormone that gets released that just rapidly uh, gets rid of the dopamine, you flush the dopamine and then you rebuild it as you refocus. And the problem with most people in the modern era is we never effectively give ourselves serotonin moments. Or if we have one, we've overused it to the point that the dopamine system no longer respects. So we get developed something called dopamine resistance. And all drugs are things that activate that serotonin system at first. So if you have that glass of wine every now and then, it relaxes you. But if you're an alcoholic drinking all the time, the way your body starts to protect itself is to become resistant to the effect of alcohol. Then you need more and more alcohol to have the same effect, and eventually that even wears out. And that's called dopamine resistance, where we are no longer able to, to relax the dopamine system because we don't recognize or feel the serotonin high. And under those conditions, that's part of the addiction methodology, but it happens in blended productivity where productivity spills over into your relaxation life. So the title of my talk was Dopamine Fasting, where, and this comes out of the Silicon Valley, I didn't invent the concept of a dopamine fast, but it's every now and then, maybe every quarter, every month, whatever you can afford, you take a morning or an afternoon, or ideally you take a whole day from when you wake up to when you go to sleep and you do nothing. You drink water, if you want to put a bit of salt in it, that's okay. If you want to walk around, you do that. No cell phone, no books, no contact with other people, um, no major physical activity, nothing. No computers, no internet, no connection. You dumb down completely. You shut down your entire productive life. What you can do is write on a, with a pen on paper. And what the goal of a dopamine fast is to reconnect you to the inherent issues in your life. Because when we're bustling and busy all the time, we're, we're incurring pain. We have physical pain. Uh, you may have that from time to time from training. And we have emotional pain. We have emotional tension that builds up. And we never, ever get relief from those two things. So dopamine fast is a morning, an afternoon, or a day where you take a complete break from your entire life. But you sit down with a pen and paper and you get inside your head and you connect with the painful issues, be they physical pain or be they anxiety or stress or depression. And you name them and you write them down. And then you also write down how they happened. You look back, you reflect back, you analyze what happened over the last few months, how you've gotten to this point. And then also you analyze what's going to happen, what strategy you can develop starting tomorrow to give yourself those regular serotonin breaks with dopamine. So the beautiful description that this guy uses is he says, it's a little bit like somebody riding a donkey. If you're riding a donkey for life, uh, the way to get the donkey to move is you put a small carrot on a stick and you hold it in front of the donkey. And the donkey typically should move toward the carrot. 
The problem is that if for the last week the donkey has been stuck at a carrot buffet where it's just got inordinate access to everything that makes the donkey feel good, after, while the donkey's feeding at that buffet, at that trough, and you dangle some pathetic little carrot in front of it, the donkey's not going to move because it's full from the trough. And if you look at our this productive blended life that crosses over into our relaxation period, that's like the carrot buffet for the donkey. The dopamine fast is a day where you remove the buffet and you starve your donkey. And if you can starve the donkey for a day and figure out what happened in the past to get to this point and what's going to happen in the future, and you are introspective and you relax, then tomorrow, when you hang that little carrot in front of the donkey, the donkey starts to move again. And it's a way to reset yourself. So on the back end of the first day of dopamine fasting is the reset. That's starving the donkey. And then the next day, you do the same thing, except on the second day, you don't work. We're going to feed the donkey. You do some exercise. You do something charitable. You connect with an old friend that you haven't spoken to, preferably in a humble way. You maybe give away to charity something that you value, something that's precious to you. You may do something artistic. You go out into the yard and you, and you weed a little bit, or you draw, or you paint, or you sing. The result is irrelevant. But on the serotonin-loading day, you do the specific things. You engage in the specific endorphin-releasing things that make you feel wonderful. And the first thing you do, preferably when you get out of bed, is pull the covers up, but do not make your bed perfectly. However, as soon as you pull the covers up, stand back from that, Pat yourself on the chest and say, damn, I'm good. Because self-recognition of effort is self-care. And the problem is we become so competitive in our lives and so results-focused, we forget to enjoy the return of the investment of effort, which should be a wonderful sense of well-being, a wonderful sense of pride, irrespective of the outcome. And in little increments, that sense of pride from effort in little increments builds up our self-esteem and our self-confidence. And most people have forgotten to do that. So the dopamine fast, serotonin load, two-day reset is a wonderful way to get back to the basics of effective, diverse, effort-based emotion management. I love it. I love it. And how often did you recommend doing that? No, as often as you need to. I do it in small fractions, probably once a week. Once a week? I'll take an evening where I just dopamine fast, and the next morning I may go off and do a couple of things that I love to do. Sometimes, probably once a season, or at least twice a year. You know, you've heard of this uh, SAD or the uh, in the winter where everybody gets uh, um, uh, how I can't remember what the SAD stands for, but it's a, a it's an affective disorder where just the winter bugs you down. Mm -hmm. So sometime in the winter, sometime in the summer, at least twice a year, I isolate two days. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. Leave me alone. Don't go there. And, and more and more, the dopamine fasting has taken hold in places like Silicon Valley, where those guys are on all the time. That's where the dopamine fast concept originated. And if you really want to hear it, all you have to do is go to YouTube and type in dopamine fast. And it's about an eight-minute YouTube video it is 
phenomenal. He's jam-packed everything in it. And I, I, the guy, I can't find out what the guy's name is. I'd love to give him credit for it. Um, and I'm giving credit to him an, uh, as an anonymous person. But it is a great video. However, that's only the first part. The second part is the second day or the second moment is to figure out and identify and plan what you're going to do on a regular basis to serotonin load. And it shouldn't involve drugs or drug-like behavior. You know, it, it's it's a hard sell at first for someone that's like really type A driven to, to think that they're going to take a couple of days off without any, you know, quote unquote work or engagement with the cell phone. I used to struggle with it. I used to, you know, be resentful towards that. I would shy away from it. But then I really started diving deep into all of what you just described. I, I would I would make my time in the woods this outlet for me, and I would go to the into the woods for you know a few days and hunt with zero cell phone, zero internet, zero interaction. And my level of productivity after coming out of that was so much greater than it was going into that that it more than made up for the two days that I'd be gone. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there are places where variations of this is happening. For example, Google did an experiment. And it seemed crazy at first, just like dopamine fasting seems crazy. They reduced themselves to a four-day week. And they gave their employees an extra day off. And guess what happened to their productivity? It went through the roof. Because people were more productive in a shorter period of time. I, when we've got longer periods of time to do things, or we're doing things continuously, and here's a word that was created. When I was in medical school, we had a small group, and we created, a friend of mine, Sean Mortimer, who lives in England, uh, created this word. He called it wabbing. And wabbing, W-A-B-B-I-N-G, is work avoidance behavior. So that we're at work, we look like we're working really hard, but we're not doing anything. And, and our productivity goes down when you wab. And if you shorten your work period so that you're focused on the task, and when your task is done, you take a day off, you're not petrified that you're not connected, and you're much, much more productive if you're not webbing. Let me ask you this question. Do you train every single day? No, I do like an eight-day rotation in which I have two days off. Oh, my God. Don't, don't, don't you like collapse and your muscles just wither away <laughs> on those two days? No, no quite the I opposite. I bet you the day you come back, is probably one of your best, most powerful training days. Without a doubt. That's a dopamine fast. I love it. I feel like I'm uh, I'm cutting into your dopamine fast right now. This is a Sunday we're recording. <laughs> this is no, this is serotonin for me. This is what I love to do. Okay. And I'm, I'm blessed that I can do this for a living. But I know we've gone on for a long time. Um, so uh, and I know you've got things to do. Well, I I definitely. Certainly do appreciate the time, Dr. Sivas. I mean, this I, I love diving into the mindset and like deep diving into the psychology as to why people do what they do, why they think the way they do, because at the end of the day, it's all stemmed back to mindset. And, you know, I, after hearing your talk at Keto Summit, I knew I wanted to get you on the podcast because I just recognized and could really relate with everything you were saying. And then you certainly haven't disappointed today because, I mean, literally everything you've said, I've just really resonated with and could not agree more with. So, you are definitely fighting the good fight, and I encourage you to just keep doing exactly what you're doing because you're doing it right. I, I really appreciate it, and thank you very much for having me on. Robert, if you don't mind, can I just ask, can I just put one thing out there, which is completely off the base of this topic, but I think very, very important because this is something that we don't have knowledge of. Um, just briefly, a lot of athletes are focused on protein intake as part of their dietary regimen, and they take an extraordinary amount of protein in. 
and the and everybody's obviously very fit and very lean and good looking but we don't know biochemically what's happening in those people i would love to be able to do an experiment where athletes who protein load a lot or eat huge amounts of protein for the expected result of bodybuilding or muscular building or tissue repair tissue building i would love to know what those folks fasting insulin is i would love to know how insulin resistant they are or are not based upon their protein intake and while we could design a trial and get an irb and spend a million dollars doing a trial and then skew the results or whatever it may be i would ask that if any athletes are high protein eaters the crossfitters the bodybuilders the endurance athletes if you eat a lot of protein and you are a fat adapted ketogenic athlete if you have a uh, um health insurance ask your doctor or you can contact me and i can I, anywhere in the us i can write a script for um uh for an insulin c peptide check i would love to know because this is very important information i would love to know what the insulin level is because if athletes are taking a lot of protein and it's resulting in insulin resistance and we don't know this if it is resulting in, in insulin resistance that's harmful that's a very harmful state to be in potentially and we need to be able to either say not an issue at all eat your protein or hey we've got to do something different and the the other response would be to protect the protein by eating a high fat diet because fat will put you in ketosis and lower that insulin so i really would like if there's anybody interested in knowing um letting me know what your fasting insulin is or alternatively contacting me um i you can either message me or contact me through my office if you if you need me to send you a script to check your insulin and and i appreciate you just hanging on on for that because that's a, that's information that we really need no totally and that's that's a topic of interest in mine as well i think you know just speaking anecdotally for a second i used to eat a ton of protein i mean coming from a traditional bro dieting bodybuilding background you know i would be eating 300 350 sometimes 400 grams of protein and a lot of people in the keto sphere they kind of demonize protein and eat far too little and that is not good either i feel like most of the population probably undereats protein however within the athlete realm i do believe there is this massive overconsumption of protein and me personally since going keto i've you know increased my dietary fat intake significantly but i've moderated my protein intake i don't think there's any inherent benefit to overconsuming protein I mean, your body can only assimilate so much protein anyway so once you cross that threshold there's no advantage to it so finally well, there might that... be a disadvantage and that's the issue there might be a disadvantage to protein loading exactly. and that would be mediated through hyperinsulinemia yeah so i think you know especially if you're keto adapted knowing that you can downregulate that protein i mean you don't want to underconsume but if you're eating adequate protein and you're able to continually build muscle and recover then there's no need to have three times your body weight in protein. Right and and that's the intellectual argument but the knowledge is going to come from what your biochemical metrics are. And and as you said everybody's got a slightly different threshold and we tend to underestimate how much protein we eat when we believe protein is important. You're right. We we uh um protein should come along for the ride when you eat meat. And and God in nature is taking care of the ratio pretty darn well. Yeah. So the fat does in a ketogenic diet, a, a, a well formulated ketogenic diet, the fat does balance out the protein. But a lot of guys still use protein supplements and protein 
by itself. And I, I'm just interested to know, because uh, Tim Noakes and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, where a lot of highly trained athletes, especially triathletes, they're finding them floating in the water after the swim. They're dead. And, and it's become a big concern, not just that, but um, athletes in the prime of their existence dropping dead when they shouldn't be. And there are certain metrics that we're looking at. We know that, that carbohydrates um, injure vascular uh, blood vessel cells and, and can cause heart attacks and strokes, which, which are in the 50s. Athletes in, the, in their 50 and 60, 56 decades, that's what happens to a lot of those. But for guys like yourself, I'd love to know what their insulin is because insulin is then triaging the protein towards sugar, not toward the tissues like you want it to be. And, and that may make you hyperglycemic. And that may be a concern in some of these, tra- these guys training and may affect them down the road in terms of their health after they, uh, when they get a little bit older. So I, I, it's just a number that I would love to know so that I can increase my concern level or decrease my concern level. Well, I will certainly send you my my blood work. Where, where can people reach out and get in touch with you and, and inquire upon this further? Yeah, so the the easiest way to get hold of me, I'm I'm on YouTube. My channel is Carb Addiction Doc, and I'd love people to subscribe. You can get me through there or through Facebook or Instagram, Carb Addiction Doc on Facebook, uh, Robert Sivers or Carb Addiction Doc on 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 uh, Carb Addiction Doc on Instagram, and you can message me directly on either of those, or you can text me to five six one. Um, six one zero. Uh, you know what? Five six one six two seven four one zero seven. And um, if you call or text that number, I can get you a script to get your um, C peptide insulin checked and some of that blood work. And we, I do that for patients all over the country because those are important starting metrics. Whether you're starting a ketogenic diet or whether you want to know what effect your protein is having. Awesome. Well, I will definitely link out to that. I'll put that in the show notes so people can easily find find you, get in, get in contact, and, and get these metrics to you. Because I think that is definitely valuable information. I feel like not enough people in the in the athlete sector uh, specifically, they just assume that they've got perfect health and they don't really dive deep. You know, if people have outward uh, you know issues that are very visible, it's it's obvious that they need to you know dive deeper and see what's going on. But I think a lot of athletes kind of hide behind this veil of just how they look and feel they don't think anything's internally wrong but everybody needs to kind of know what these metrics are exactly right exactly right and um you know we're just discovering this realm We've, we now have the carbohydrate side of things pretty well worked out but we really haven't worked out what the appropriate conditions of eating protein and fat are um and more is not always better totally agree well, Dr. Robert Sivas, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I've learned a ton, and I really, really do appreciate the conversation because I think we see eye to eye on most things. Thank you very much. And, you know, you and I do this because we care, not because of any other reason. And if anybody needs additional help or additional deep dives, please contact me. Absolutely. Well, thank you again.